many of the hallmarks that once marked American society have, have disappeared. They're really hardly there at all. One of those is the expectations that we have on our, we used to call them young people or young adults, now we just say those are their teen years, and what we expect they can handle in terms of serious responsibility. Instead, our society has extended childhood into not just high school, but even to the college years. The model given our teens is that in those institutions is go out, have fun. Uh, It's for partying, it's for games, it's for entertainment. And even worse, I read something not long ago. It was a complaint uh, by a a woman writer. It was in a whole book she had researched, was that women are having a hard time finding men who are actually serious and responsible. And that's those who are in their 20s and even to their 30s. And the age for first married is now in the very late 20s for guys and girls. That's a radical change even from when we got married 24 years ago. At that point, for girls, it was still 24, and guys was 27. Now I think it's 28 and 27 is the average. Uh, It used to be 25 was an old maid. Well, now the average is past that. And one of the big things that it's trying to find a young man who's actually responsible. They want the physical benefits of marriage, but they still want to go out and play games and party and not be serious and take on the responsibility of leading a family and providing. That's become a hallmark of American society, and that's just one of the the switches that has happened, one of the negative things. And uh, just to let you know, if you're an American taxpayer, the federal government's takeover of the student loan industry means you get to subsidize the party years. Isn't that wonderful? Well, even worse in this is we're finding that increasing number of graduates uh, are moving home. I would like to say that it was just a phenomenon that was caused since the uh, 2008 recession, uh, but unfortunately the trend started long before that. These are adults in their late 20s, even their early 30s, who continue to live at home on their parents' income instead of going out and doing whatever they need to do to earn a living for themselves. They're allowed to be continuing on in really what is still childhood. They go and do what they want, not taking on the responsibilities. Um, Now, in saying this, I do want to point out we have have, uh, exceptions to that. And that's last week, I need to brag on the teens of this church. Uh, I think every single junior higher and high schooler and collegiate that was not working was here helping out. Even more so was the contrast when we found out a church about four or five times our size has not been able to get even one, not one teen to volunteer to do anything. And so I commend you teens for your uh, heart of service and for you parents who've been diligent to teach your children who have rapidly become young adults to be young adults, take on responsibility and see life is not all about them. It's about service. It's about glorifying God. It is about treating others the way you'd like to be treated and serving them. And uh, I just praise the Lord for you and all that you have done this past week. It is a great model and uh, I think a, a glory to our, our God. Now, in our study this, of Daniel this morning, we're going to see this contrast again, because this is nothing new. This is just an ongoing thing that you have those who are going to be responsible and those that are not. Those who were, are 
sometimes even anxious to take on the responsibilities of adulthood and those that do not want to depart from childhood. Those that are willing to stand alone, if that's what's necessary, to do what is right, and those that just go along the flow. Daniel and his three friends make this very clear in chapter 1. I introduced the book last week, and we learned a lot about uh, the writer, Daniel, and the historical setting. So pick up the, uh, the sermon notes or get a copy of the audio CD to, to get all that detail. The chapter begins with the fall of Jerusalem. Look at Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Now, Jehoiakim's father, Josiah, was the last good king of Judah. He was also the last independent king. There will not be another independent king or a good king of of the Jews in Jerusalem until Jesus Christ returns. Josiah was defeated and killed in battle by Pharaoh Necho, who in turn placed Jehoiakim on the throne, so he is basically Pharaoh Necho's vassal. Pharaoh Necho was then defeated by the Babylonian prince Nebuchadnezzar, who then came to Jerusalem. While he's in Jerusalem, uh, besieging Jerusalem, his father dies and becomes king of Babylon. Jerusalem finally falls. Jehoiakim is an evil king. All the kings that follow him are going to be evil. And the fall of Jerusalem was not a surprise. It had been predicted long before by the prophets because of Israel's uh, evil, and then Judah's evil following suit. The current prophet, Jeremiah, had been warning over and over again, Babylon is coming, Babylon is going to be victorious. When they're outside the gates, he's telling them, they are going to be victorious because of your evil. Well, now it has fallen. The reign of Josiah, in many ways, was only a brief reprieve from the evils of the kings. Manasseh and Ammon were absolutely terrible brief reprieve under Josiah, and then just continually evil. And God has brought judgment. Well, when the city falls, the king of Babylon carries away some of the uh, goods that were in the the temple, some of the, the treasures there, not all of them, but just some of them, and he takes them to the temple of his god in Shinar. He also takes with him some of the people as captives. That's described in the next two verses. Daniel 1, verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability to serve it for serving in the king's court, and he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was very particular about who he was going to bring to Babylon, He was not looking for slave labor. He was rather looking for those who could be trained in order to extend uh, uh, his rule of his kingdom over those kingdoms he had conquered. He was not looking for a short-term game. He was looking long-term. How could Babylon have influence for generations to come? How could it be the supreme power in the world for many generations, not just for a short time? Well, if he found and trained the right people for his government officials, in other words, to coin a phrase, to Babylonianize them, they would be faithful to him. They, in turn, then, would teach their own people the things they had learned, and they would basically 
imposed Babylonian culture on every kingdom they conquered. Loyalty then would go to the king of, of Babylon. And that would be true whether the people were left in the land or deported. And so this was key for him for now, the long-term goal. His plan was to train goal. Jews to help him govern the Jewish people, strengthen his own kingdom, and reduce the possibility of future revolt. He needed Jews who had very particular characteristics. The first qualification in the text tells us that they had to be of the royal family or of nobility. Why? Well, a couple reasons. First of all, if you are in a nation that's ruled by a king, there is an automatic deference to the authority of someone out of that family, the nobility. And that would mean that if he's training the nobles, the royal family, and they are Babylonianized, and they come back, there's an automatic deference to, well, they're our leaders. They're the ones that have the right to do this. So that's one reason. So he's taking these families uh, and training them. A hereditary position would be helpful. A second reason for taking of the royal family nobility is it's going to be some years before that's done, and he needs some nice hostages to make sure there's no rebellion while that's happening. And that's what he has. He has hostages. Don't cause a problem. We've got your kids. Okay? Now, the second qualification is that they are a youth, a youth. The particular word here, yeled, is used most often actually of young children, but also can be used of adolescents as it is here, those we would describe as being in their teen years. If they were really young, they could not meet the rest of the qualifications. That's one reason we know he's really talking about adolescents. And in these particular cases, it's probably those more like 14, 15, 16 in that age. As you get older, it becomes harder to train them. And it's not so much that you cannot teach an old dog new tricks. It's more of the old dog is going to reject what you're trying to teach them in favor of the things he already likes. So it's, that's, it's not a, a lack of intelligence or anything. It's going to be a stubbornness that he's going to hit if they get older. But a youth, someone who's already demonstrated some... Um, ability and intelligence can be easily swayed because they lack the experience. They're vulnerable to the influences that will end up helping them change their whole core system of values. Now, nothing is new under the sun. Ecclesiastes tells us that, and this stuff is still going on today. This is why we have to be very cautious ourselves. There are a lot of very intelligent youth that have been raised in Christian homes that have had their whole system of values changed in high school, and in college due to contrary teachers and professors. We need to be very careful. Parents, you need to be very careful about the education of your youth in your home, not just when they're small, but as they continue on. When they get to these ages, you're going to have to be more serious about interacting with them then than they were when they were little. When they're little, they want to do whatever you do anyways. Little boys want to be like daddy. Little girls want to be like mommy. That's why they play dress up. When they get to be that other age, middle teens, older teens, they're looking for independence. And they have plenty of people who will tell them, you have to be independent, and forget it, your parents are clueless, they're idiots, they don't know what they're talking about. I have my degree. I have a PhD. I've got other letters behind my name that says I'm really smart. My dad called those people educated fools, but you can see where my family was coming from. Because so often, they had to teach them how to do the work they were supposed to do, and they were only high school grads. I think that says a lot. And then, for those of you who have earned your degrees, you realize that if you earned your degree, anybody can do this as long as you have time and money. 
it doesn't really take that much. And you start realizing the little degrees, those letters behind names, aren't so impressive. But they are to an adolescent. And they are in the peer pressure that goes in there. And pretty soon, core values start changing, regardless of what you trained them early on. Let me give you one other very strong warning here. Be very careful of Christian schools. There's a whole lot of them that say they're Christian, but when you get down to their core values, they are nothing more than the same worldly philosophy that exists everywhere else. The only difference is they have some uh, theological lip service and they have some perfunctory prayer sometime during the day. That's about it. And I speak from experience. We have lost kids in this this church here that have gone on to Christian schools and were taught opposite of what they were here. The parents thought, good, this is going to reinforce what we've been teaching them. They came back contrary. Be very careful. Be involved. You're going to have to be ready to discuss nearly anything under the sun as your teens grapple with truth and what they really believe. You're going to have to be willing to be involved with that and have your own system of beliefs challenged as it's being challenged to them. They need to know how to deal with it. Be ready for that. Be involved with them. The greater tragedy here and the reason it happens is too often as parents, the teens years when we tend to be backing up. Well, they're being independent. They can go do what they want. That's when you need to be most involved. Make sure you're continuing that good, a good relationship with them. There's all sorts of things you can do to, to foster that, but be involved with them. Be humble with them. You're not lecturing them anymore. You're discussing things with them and helping them gain a foundation that will stand firm regardless of what they go into. Well, apparently, Daniel and his friends had that kind of training because we're going to find that everybody else goes the way of Babylon. They're going to stand firm. Now, the third qualification that was listed here is physical. Now, it's generally true that a physically fit leader is going to be a better leader. Let's face it. It takes a lot of energy to be zipping all over the place and trying to lead things. And someone in physical shape, they have the stamina to be able to do that. Um, Another reason that the king may be looking for some of these, as it says, good-looking ones is that, let's face it, people are naturally prone to follow someone who looks good. There's sort of an aversion towards, ugh, they're ugly, I don't think I want to follow them. In fact, I think that's even borne out in our own political system with the rise of photography and especially television. Let's face it, there's not a whole lot of ugly people out in the, the public sector where they've been elected. We've almost to the point that if you're ugly, don't bother to run no matter how good you are because people don't care what you think anymore. They want to know you look good. We are in a media culture. We need to be careful of that. But it's just part of what is true about human nature. Okay? Uh, we have some folks involved in politics. I know you've got these experts who will tell you, well, you need to do this and this. And in fact, remember, Jim, when you were running, they said you had to shave off your beard. I like him in a beard. Joan, I know you don't really care for it that much, but I think he looks good in a beard. Our distinguished, handsome judge. See, there, now there's a beard. Look over here, Jim. There's where we're going, all right? Yes, full, magnificent manliness, all right? All you guys with these little bitty things, look, that is a beard. I'm jealous I can't grow one. It comes in patches. It looks terrible. So I just get the mustache. Oh, well, enough for guy things. But this is simply a truth. So the king is looking for certain qualifications. This is one of them. He's looking for leaders, those who will influence the ones to come. He's Babylonianizing them. Remember, King Saul was acclaimed because he was tall and handsome. 
and the people easily found favor with him. David had a harder time. Remember, he was ruddy looking. They didn't follow him as well. He had to really prove himself before he got into the Now, the fourth the qualification home. here is mental ability. A good-looking man from a royal family is not going to do King Nebuchadnezzar a bit of good if they lack the intelligence to do the job. And so the king, one of those, it says in the ESV, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. They needed to demonstrate already that they were intelligent and had a good breadth of education. This, again, is why we know these are adolescents and not young children. Now, the last qualification here is being competent to stand or to serve in the king's palace. And it refers to the ability to follow proper etiquette. Since these captives were from the royal family and from nobility, they should have already had some idea of the proper protocol in serving a king. Even more important in those times, because if you didn't follow the right protocol, you could just lose your head. You're gone. Remember in the book of Esther, she even said that if she came in without being invited, she as the queen could be killed. It was a good thing the king held the scepter out to her and spared her life and listened to her. So this was an important point as well. Now, verse 4 also lists out particular subjects they're going to study. The literature, the language of the Chaldeans. Learning the Chaldean language, of course, is an obvious necessity. Learning the Chaldean literature, though, is more than what we think of, say, taking a literature class. This is training in Chaldean culture and worldview. They're going to be taught to understand the world from Chaldean eyes. The goal is to make these Jewish youths Babylonian in their thinking, and the loyalty will be to the Babylonian king. That's the goal. And they're going to be in this intensive training for three years. Now, in order to make these youths have the maximum benefit of their training, the king's going to provide for them. Look at verse 5. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now, certainly they need food in order just to get through education, right? You're going to have to eat something. But note here that this is not just a provision of food to sustain them during their years of training. It's specifically the king's choice food. This is the best of the land. The food is part of their training and part of the plan to make them loyal to the king that had captured them. Now, normally, humans are a little bit resistive. If you are captured by someone, you don't like the guy. This is a part of the plan to say is, this is a nice guy. In fact, you're better off with him than you were before. Now think about it. These youths have been in Jerusalem. It hadn't been going well. They already had lost the war with Pharaoh Necho. They were already in trouble with that. They're now under siege by the king of Babylon. They haven't been eating too well for a while. They get to Babylon, and now they're given the king's choice food. Whoa, this is good stuff. This is better than we had it before. This is a real nice guy. Do you see? It's to make you obligated to the king, as well as making you used to what is Babylonian. This is much better than what you had. We're superior. That's all part of it. And unless a person had a great sense of history and an understanding 
of what the Lord was doing, that means he would have had to listen to the prophets earlier, they're going to be turned by this. Their loyalty is just going to start switching. The king is endearing himself to them as well as creating this obligation towards himself. Now, we also find out in this verse the length of time is three years of training. This is three years of very intensive indoctrination into all things Babylonian, after which they're going to enter the king's personal service to do whatever the king desires. Verses 6 and 7 introduces to four young men where we demonstrate they are very different than all the rest. Verse 6, Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. Now Daniel's name means God is my judge. He has given the Babylonian name Belteshazzar, which means Bel protects life. However, Daniel is consistently referred to throughout the book as Daniel. Even Nebuchadnezzar, when he's referring to them, uses both names. He'll either say Belteshazzar, who is Daniel, or Daniel, who's known as Belteshazzar. So he has such significant character, even his Babylonian name didn't stick so well. His, his Jewish name stuck. He was an, an amazing character. Now, the rest of the young men, Hananiah, his name means Yahweh has been gracious. His name is, name is changed to Shadrach. That means command of Aku. Aku is their uh, moon god. Mishael, his name means who is like God. His name is changed to Meshach, means who is like Aku. Azariah, his name means Yahweh has helped. His name is changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. Nebo in Babylonian um, mythology is the son of the god Bel. Now, even today, we understand if you move to a new land, a new culture, you often change your name to kind of fit in. Jesse did that, but I still think your name is pretty. But I'll, I'll go with Jesse. Everybody seems to understand. And you, you answer to that, so that's okay. And so a lot of you have had that. You came from somewhere else, and you may have changed your name just to fit in. But even more so, it's going to happen to those who are captured and deported somewhere. Why? Well, one, it identifies the person in the new culture. Okay? It's a new culture. Whatever my name was is I don't get to use it anymore. Second, it signifies ownership by the victorious culture. Your identity is switched. You're conquered. And often it has religious overtones. For example, all of Daniel and his three friends, all their names had some significance about the God of Israel. Their names are changed, and now they all have something to do with one of the gods of the Babylonian pantheon. Well, Daniel has uh, new situations living in. In some ways, this could be very, very good. Look at Daniel chapter, or Daniel 1, verse 8. Verse 8. 7, 8. Daniel's resolve. Now, if you think of it from the standpoint that they were in a bad situation, they're under siege, couldn't eat much, it was you know, dangerous. Now they're in Babylon, they have access to good food, uh, they're not in danger of being killed in battle, uh, they're being provided for, they're getting a free education by one of the most advanced cultures of the time, 
And if you remember that Jeremiah even had said that uh, this captivity is going to be for their welfare. It's to give them a future and the hope. You know what? This could be pretty good, right? But verse 8 informs us that Daniel discovered a problem, and it's going to need to be resolved very quickly. Verse 8, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. The text does not tell us the specific reason Daniel concludes the king's food and wine will defile him. Now, perhaps Daniel memorized some of the, the Proverbs, and he understood what was behind it. Proverbs 23, verses 1 through 3 says this, when you sit down with a ruler. Consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you're a man of great appetite. Do not desire his delicacies. It is deceptive food. All right? Maybe he saw through the deception. But since the text tells us specifically that he saw it was going to defile him, there has to be a lot more than just what Proverbs says. Well, now we go back to the law of Moses. Daniel may be young, but he's been trained well in the dietary laws. These are things God expects of them. And he sees there's going to be some problems here. Now, again, we're not told the specifics, but we can certainly figure out what they could have been. First of all, there are restrictions on what you can eat. You can't eat certain kinds of animals. If they are serving in these animals, Daniel can't eat them. They will defile him. Second, even if it's an animal that you can eat, it has to be killed in a particular manner. That's what makes it kosher. If it's not killed that way, and probably would not have been because it's a very specific way they had to be killed, it would defile him. It also could not contain the blood or certain other parts, certain uh, fat parts, or it would be defiling. So the meat could give him a real problem, the animal, whatever it was. If it's the wrong animal, if it's not killed correctly, if it has the wrong stuff in it. And so he's, I'm not going to be defiled by that. Now, there are no such restrictions on wine unless he'd taken a Nazarite vow. Number six spells all that out. Here's all the things that Nazarites commit to do, which basically means they don't touch anything that has to do with a grape. But it doesn't seem that he has made that vow. Nothing indicates it. It's probably more for the fact that the food of the Babylonians, like in most pagan cultures, including the wine, would have first been dedicated to the gods. And Daniel does not want to partake of anything that indicates some kind of acquiescence to these idols and deities he knows are false. He doesn't want to be defiled by them. That's key. He's purposed in his heart, or actually, the, actually more of a, uh, it's a setting of the will. Remember, we are often translating in the Bible the word heart a little differently because the way we use it. We're trying to make it sense in English. It's referring to the seat of the will. He is determined for himself he is not going to violate any of God's dietary commands or do anything that might be part of the worship of a God he knows is false. But that gives him a dilemma. He can't just go and do what he wants. He's a captive. He can only get whatever they put in front of him. That's what you get to eat. Or starve. It's one or the other. Well, he now demonstrates his character by making an appeal to the official first. He just doesn't become defiant and obstinate. I'm just not eating this. I'll starve myself to death until you do what I want. He understands humility. He understands the Lord's uh, direction when it comes to uh, authority. And he makes his appeal first. Now, what he would have done afterward, we don't know because the man 
uh, listens to his appeal. He's going to put the matter in God's hands. Let's let God deal with this. Verse 9. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths of your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, who the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days, then let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence, the appearance of the youth who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. Now God had already granted Daniel kindness and mercy with this commander that was over him and his friends. And so he listened to Daniel's appeal, but He's immediately afraid. Why? Because there's a real problem for him. If they don't look good, he's in trouble. And these are despotic kings. You didn't do what I want? Off with your head. Bye. You're gone. And it happened a lot. That's kind of the control they had in their kingdom. So that's his appeal. Is I'm willing to listen to you. I'm willing to try something, but I'm not going to put my own life at risk for this. Now, him saying this, that he's concerned about what their appearance is going to be like, they're going to be haggard, tells us that he understood something about vegetarianism. Now, most vegetarians seem to think that they have a superior diet. You know what? That's okay. If they don't want to eat the meat, pass it over, I'll barbecue it, and I'll eat it. Um, But there are a couple problems that come with it. One is a spiritual one, because some people think they're spiritually superior by being vegetarian. Those people are deluded by the devil. And that's just plain out there. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 are very clear that a religious requirement to abstain from foods is the doctrine of demons. He could not say it more plain than that. Okay, so someone who thinks I'm more superior spiritually because I'm doing this or abstaining from that, I'm sorry, you're not. You're now influenced by demons. You're in a worse position. We just have to receive our food with gratitude. Vegetarians also claim that their diet is more healthy. Well, the simple reality of nutrition is it's not. It's not, and I'm going to tell you why. There are those who claim that if we would just eat like Adam and Eve did in the garden, we'd be more healthy. I agree. If we could eat like Adam and Eve did in the garden, we would be more healthy. But we got kicked out of the garden. We can't get to that food. And since the flood, the soils are not as good as they were then because rain leaches the nutrients out of the soil. And that's why you can plant in the same year someplace and the crops get worse and worse and worse and less healthy for you. You took whatever was there and then it's leaching out. It's not a rich soil anymore. It can't produce a plant that will give you enough nutrition. And there are certain proteins that are easily found in animal meat, but very difficult to find in in plants. And unless someone who's a vegetarian is very careful to search out and get those particular proteins, they simply are not as healthy. Now, some are. Many are not. Sometimes it's almost easy to find a vegetarian. You look at their hair, and it it looks very unhealthy because they're not getting those particular proteins. So... This is just reality. Apparently, this commander over 
these uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, he understood that. And he's concerned. If I'm going to give you just vegetables, you're going to look bad. The king's not going to like this, and I'm going to lose my life. So Daniel proposed a test. Now, this is him yielding himself as God's going to have to intervene here. All right? God's going to have to intervene. They are not going to eat what the king's providing for 10 days. And then just examine us, and you compare. Now, obviously, if there's any sort of decline in their appearance, test is over, you're eating the king's stuff whether you like it or not. But it's going to have to be better than that. They're going to have to look at least as good or better. Otherwise, the commander, every few days, is going to be coming and examining very carefully to make sure you haven't declined now. If Daniel wants the freedom to say, we're going to go from here on, and I'm not going to have to worry about violating my own conscience and God's laws concerning diet, then they're going to have to make sure they appear in such a way that the official over them says, hey, great, we're giving you vegetables. Well, here's the answer that God gave. Verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter, this is the king's official, and he tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, their appearance seemed better. And they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept them, uh, giving them vegetables. So God did bless Daniel and his friends. At the end of the 10 days, they not only had remained healthy, they actually looked better, they were in better health, they had added some weight in just 10 days compared to all the other youths that were there. And the result, you can have the diet you want. I'm happy, you're healthy, the king's going to be happy, I keep my life. Now, the vegetables, I'll just point out here, actually refers to anything that is grown out of the soil. So whatever they could grow, they could eat. God honored their desire to be faithful to his commands. That's the point. And he honored their humble approach as well as he was, they were seeking from the servant of the king is, can we try this test? They were humble in their approach. And the Lord would continue to bless them throughout this whole training period. Remember, it's going to be three years. Well, the text jumps to the end of that, thir- that period. At the end of the three years, here's what they found. Verse 17. And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and out of them all... All, you know, all these Jews, out of them all, not one was found like, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. So the end of these three years, Daniel, along with his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, They are far superior in every way. The text is very specific. The wisdom came from God. It's not because of the Babylonian training system. God gave them this wisdom. No one else even comes close. The king even found them ten times better than the current magicians and conjurers, those who are currently serving as his wise men. These were men who were trained in Babylonian wisdom. They were trained in the cultural religions of the Babylonians. They were trained in astrology, which had a huge influence in their... uh, their superstitions of their religion. In fact, uh, we meet these same guys later, or at least their descendants, 
the Magi. Remember the Magi that came from the east that saw the star and came to Jerusalem when Jesus was born? The word magician here is the same word. That's who these people are. These were the wise men of the east. Now, we're going to see a lot more of these fellows as we study through Daniel. But they had set themselves up for some problems. Now, obviously, because they're involved with the occultic stuff, they're going to have certain abilities that come from demons. But like all those who try and get their power from demons, they tend to boast beyond what they are capable of doing, and therefore they have to become good at scheming and lying. And we're going to find through the, the text that Nebuchadnezzar did not trust them. In fact, he's going to require things of them to test them because he's trying to catch them in their lies. And he does. Daniel is ten times better than all of them, as are Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. They stand out as a clear contrast not just because of the intellectual ability, but because they, at a young age, are also honest. They have integrity. That's very different. They had integrity. Now, whether the king knew about um, their commitment to keep God's commandments or not, he is certainly was the beneficiary of now having four men he could entrust with important matters of the kingdom. He is in their king's personal service. This is the inner circle. They're invited in, and they're still youths. If they were, say, 15, 16, three years of training, they're only 18, 19, maybe 20 years old, and they're the king's personal servants. That says quite a bit, doesn't it? But why are they there? It's going to come back down to integrity. Integrity. Now, verse 17 also points out the Lord gave Daniel the ability to understand visions and dreams. Throughout the rest of the book, we're going to find this is very important. Next week... In chapter 2, it is key to Daniel being able to do anything. He has this ability that God has given him. It's important to Nebuchadnezzar. It's also important to us because it's by that ability we have been given an understanding of what is to come in the future. And verse 21 concludes with the remark that Daniel continued in the first year of Cyrus the king. It's a very simple statement. It's not telling you how long Daniel lived. It's saying Daniel served in the Babylonian government for the remainder of its total existence. The first year of Cyrus the king is the year that Babylon ceases. Cyrus is a Medo-Persian. Babylon is gone. Daniel serves through the entire remaining time of the Babylonian empire. Daniel and his friends were young when they were captured and deported. But they already possessed the key characteristics that would make them important in the service of the king of Babylon and in biblical history. Though young, though inexperienced, they had confidence in their belief in God. They were rock solid in that. And they were committed, absolutely committed, to following the Lord wherever they were, even in a foreign realm. And it was out of their belief in God, this commitment to serve him first and foremost in everything, that all the other characteristics that developed in their life flowed. That's the challenge for us, and that's the point of the story and one of the reasons it's written down. It's not only an introduction to these men and what we'll find throughout the rest of the book, but it's a constant reminder to us that these are still the characteristics God wants in us. And you don't have to wait till you're old. And I realize some of you think 25 is old. You don't have to wait then. You should have these things at a young age. Yes, 12, 13, 14, bar mitzvahs at age 12, son of the law. You should have enough information about what God has said and have a commitment to that, to following it. What did Daniel do? 
Well, he and his friends were very simple. They understood what God had said. They believed what God had said. They committed themselves to doing what God said, regardless of anything else, regardless of the peer pressure against them. It's one of the hardest things in our young people, is this peer pressure. And then they simply stepped forward to do what they knew was right, and they left the results in God's hands. They trusted him. It's up to God. I will do what he wants me to do. Now it's up to him, whatever the results will be. If those same characteristics are in place in your life, that's regardless of how old you are or how young you are, if those are the characteristics that mark your life, you can be like them regardless of whatever kind of pressures are placed upon you. Whatever is trying to force you to somehow compromise your beliefs, your faith, you can withstand that, whether it be at school or work or among friends, among family, wherever it is. You can be like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were different from all the other ones. You step out on faith, you humbly do what is right, let the Lord, who is wiser than us, deal with the, with the results. Leave it in his hands. If you do that, you will be wiser than all your peers, and you will be better than all those who are professed to be wise. Why? Because you'll be a godly individual. And as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Side with him and you win every time.